Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be doing a study starting in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, and going to the end of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. As we continue pushing towards the end of the book of Romans, we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 14. So you can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Turn to Romans chapter 14, verse 13, which is where we'll pick up our study today. In much of chapter 14, Paul addresses some points of contention that were apparently taking place in the Christian church at Rome, and probably in many churches throughout the Christian world at that time. Because of cultural traditions and the ways people were raised, or what have you, some people felt that they had to obey certain dietary laws and commemorate certain special days in this or that way. For instance, the Jewish Christians, uh, though through Christ they were part of the New Covenant, many Jewish Christians at that time felt that they had to continue keeping the dietary laws of the Old Covenant and celebrate the Sabbath in the ways that the Old Covenant prescribed. And moreover, many of them, presumably from what Paul's writing here, would judge others, even non-Jews, for not doing the same thing. On the other hand, some non-Jewish Christians would treat with contempt the Jewish Christians because they were continuing in the ways of the Old Covenant. It's this judgment on the one side and contempt on the other that Paul was addressing here. And he was looking to put an end to both the judgment and contempt. In the first part of the chapter, which we covered in the last couple of weeks, uh, Paul lays out what's going on in general terms. Uh, Basically, the strong, uh, meaning those who don't have scruples about what to eat, etc., the strong are not to treat with contempt the weak, and the weak are not to judge the strong. In this section, Paul delves into the reasons for this and speaks about the harm that both sides could cause by judging or showing contempt. So let's read today's passage and then we'll circle back and dig into it. We'll be reading Romans chapter 14 verse 13 through to Romans chapter 15 verse 2. Quote, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up." Now, in our last study, I talked about the chiastic structure in verses 1 through 12, and we even talked about how the structure could guide us in developing the main points of the passage. I also see a chiastic structure in this passage. In fact, in chapters 14 and 15, there is one chiastic structure after another, the, the way I've laid it out, and it's all very cool in my opinion. Just briefly, for review, a chiastic structure is where there are parallel statements in the form of A, B, C, D, etc., D, C, B, A, where the A's are parallel, the B's are parallel, and the C's, etc. And these structures don't have to be exactly four levels. They can be any number of levels. They can just be two levels in which it would go A, B, B, A, or five levels where it would go A, B, C, D, E, E, D, C, B, A, etc., uh, the point is, um, you have the outer <laughs> outer passages of a chiastic structure parallel, and as you go inward, those passages are parallel verses or, or statements. Uh, then as you go inward again, you have more parallel statements until you get to the middle, uh, in which case um, the middle of these structures usually defines the main emphasis of the passage. For this passage, I'll just lay out what I see is the structure, and using the structure we can discuss the main points because the structure really defines the main points for us. Um, you know, so so if if I see one of these things, uh, I, I, it makes my life easier as a teacher. I don't have to figure out for myself what are the main points of what Paul's saying because the structure really lays it all out for me, um, lays out what I should concentrate on in this passage. So then, if you have the benefit of watching this on the YouTube version, uh, there's PowerPoint slides that go along with it. If you're, if you're just listening to it, um, you can access this study on YouTube if, and go back and, and watch it and see how I've laid things out. I'll try to explain it as best I can uh, audibly. So there are six levels in this passage. So it goes A, B, C, D, E, F, and then F, E, D, C, B, A. For each level, I've summarized the point of each level to help clarify why the statements are parallel to each other. Um, sometimes that's not so easy to see, actually. Uh, and and that's something that usually occurs with with larger structures. For some levels of these things, the parallelism between the various levels is very easy to see, but then there are levels in the in the structure where things are a bit vague and take some looking for and maybe some meditation. In fact, sometimes I'll think that I have things laid out and then it all falls apart because there's just too much that doesn't fit into the structure. Other times I think that maybe maybe I'll have a structure and, and I'll lay it out and then I'll look at it and say, well, is this really working? Then I'll come back to it later and look at it and the light bulb or whatever will go on and I'll say, wow, that really works. So anyway, my point is there is some tinkering that needs to be done in figuring out these things. And and to be honest, not all people agree on exactly how to lay the structures out. Um, In fact, for full disclosure for today's structure, I had seen the possibility of it as I was 
reading and study this passage, um, and I laid it out how, how I saw it. And then later I came across in one of the commentaries I was reading on the passage, a slightly different layout of the structure. Uh, I agreed with the author, his name was James Dunn, who uh, has written a commentary on the Book of Romans, a famous one, fairly modern. Anyway, he laid out a chiastic structure uh, that's a bit different at the end than mine. And uh, I compared mine with his and I, you know, big surprise, I thought mine was better. But I did have a reason for that. Um, one, one re- the, the main reason I think mine worked better than his is that um, mine led to a, another chiastic structure right after it. And in my studies of these passages in Romans chapter 14 and 15, uh, as I said, I think before, I found six chiastic structures in a row with no gap between them um, and the way... Uh, Professor Dunn laid it out, there would be a gap where there were some verses that fit, didn't fit in. Anyway, my point is, we scholars are wrangling over this stuff and, and, and you know, seeking to find these things and lay them out correctly, and not all, all of us agree on exactly how things lay out. But most, but when we find a structure like this, uh, there, there usually is agreement that there is a structure because some of the levels are clearly parallel to each other and they they form this kind of v-shaped parallelism anyway let me first describe the levels and what verses they match up with first we have level a which is the outside of the structure Uh, i see level a as being verse 13 parallel to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. they're parallel because uh, in verses 13 and 14, Paul's giving kind of instruction to the weak in faith and, and telling them not to judge the other side. And and in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul's telling the strong in faith to bear with and, and build up the weak. So there's a parallelism there. Uh, level B would be ch- uh, verse 14. Um, and... The other side of level B, the parallel passage to level B, would be verses 22 and 23. And the way I see them as being parallel is, is, is Paul speaking in both of those passages about our conscience being our guide in how we act. Uh, the C level is verse 15, the first part of this verse 15, actually. Um, the part that says, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. And then that's parallel to the end of verse 20 into verse 21. And both of them kind of are instructions uh, to to the various sides. Uh, verse 15 speaks of not causing distress to others. And, and verse uh, 20 and 21 speak of not causing stumbling. For level D, we have an obvious parallelism. We have the statement in verse 21, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And then in verse 20, the first part saying, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. So we have that com- uh, the common structure there of the phrase that begins in both of them, do not destroy, dot, dot, dot. The fifth level, level E, would be verse 16, saying, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. And... That's parallel to verses 18 and 19. Both deal with how other people perceive you. On the one side in in verse 16, 
you know, it talks about avoid being spoken of as evil. And then verses 18 and 19 speak of, you know, seek to serve Christ and be approved by men. So slightly parallel there, I think. Uh, The center of the passage is this key phrase in verse 17, which says first what the kingdom of God is not. Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. And then he tells us at the end of the verse what the kingdom of God is, where he says, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So that's how I've laid out the chiastic structure in this passage. As I said, you can look at it on the slide or just, you know, memorize it as you're driving in your car or whatever. I don't know. Let's go through the main points of the study by actually looking at these levels and, and studying the, pas- the parallel passages. That is a good way to study um, passages that have this chiastic structure laid out. Um, let's look at level D, where the parallelism is very clear. Uh, the end of verse 15 says, and I said this before, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ has died. And then verse 20, at the beginning of that verse, we have, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. So clearly those are parallel uh, passages or phrases. Do not destroy, do not destroy. They both begin with. and um, So that's a clear parallelism and kind of an anchor that kind of tells you, you're kind of on the right track if you, when you find these obvious parallel uh, verses or passages within the structure. You think, ah, I'm doing all right, because this one's obviously parallel. Uh, in the center, let's look at that one. The center, as I said, usually provides the main emphasis of the passage that the author wants to give us. Um, and again, the parallelism there in the center in verse 17 is very clear. Uh, as I said before, first it says what the kingdom of God is not, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. And then it says what the kingdom of God is at the end of the verse, but the but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let's kind of start our study as we dig into these verses by looking at that center verse. As I've said before, uh, the center of the structure gives us the emphasis of the passage, and I think that's the case here. This verse kind of stands out even as you're reading the passage, kind of jumps out at you, at least it did for me, just reading through the passage, even knowing nothing about the chiastic structure. Uh, And most of the passage speaks of practical instructions in the midst of this situation that Uh, the Roman church was facing, but uh, verse 17 kind of gives general insight into what the kingdom of God in general is all about. So even as you're reading this passage casually, your eye and mind kind of might pause on this verse because it seems to be more significant or significant, um, uh, possibly more significant than the other verses, saying something that's general uh, rather than specifically looking at this contention that was going on in that church. So let's read it again. Uh, Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, This verse is really giving us a contrast between the ways of the old covenant and the ways of the new covenant. It's even giving us a contrast between the ways of the various pagan religions that were predominant in Rome a contrast between those religions and the Christian religion. Most religions of that time consisted of various detailed rules and regulations concerning how to please the pagan god. 
do this, don't do that, eat this at that time, uh, you know, don't drink this at that time, go, go to the pagan temple or, or whatever at this time on that day, offer this or that sacrifice. All these rules and regulations, you know, were made, you know, as people tried to please their pagan gods by following them. Um, but that's not how to please God, you know. Um, and you might, you might say, well, didn't the Jews in the Old Covenant have a bunch of regulations just like this? It's somewhat true, but God never wanted the focus of the Jewish religion or the focus of the children of God as they lived to be on these rules and regulations. The Lord said to Hosea, um, and also Jesus told the Pharisees, uh, quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That comes from Hosea 6, 6 or Matthew 9, 13. In other words, God's priority for us is to obey the moral aspects of the law. You know, be holy, be, be righteous, live righteously, love your neighbor, promote peace. Um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, and it's similar to this verse here in Romans 14, 7, uh, 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not about food and drink, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we've spoken about it before. The purpose of the Old Covenant dietary laws was to serve, to set apart the children of Israel as a culture different from those around them, to set them apart so that this ragtag collection of slaves who fled Egypt could grow up into a unified nation, um, set apart and distinct from the cultures around them. And likewise, the Sabbath laws had the same purpose. The Sabbath was this great institution that served to bring the families of the children of Israel together, bonding them as they enjoyed the Sabbath meal together every week and just kind of hang, you know, hung out together. So these regulations had their purpose, the food laws uniting the children of Israel into a nation, the Sabbath laws uniting the Jewish people into close-knit families. But these rules and regulations were never meant to be carried out at the expense of the moral law. The moral laws trump the dietary laws. I, you know, just as it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the Lord says. Or, or what Paul says, the kingdom of God. It's, it's not about food and drink, but, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this center verse of the structure fulfills its purpose by giving us the main point and emphasis of what Paul is saying in this passage. As we study the structure, we see that a few of the levels speak about this. Let's look at level C. Uh, level C is verse 15, which says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love, unquote. And then the last the parallel to that is the last part of verse 20 into verse 21. It says, quote, All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall, unquote. Here Paul is telling us that we should consider the feelings and shall we say, the weaknesses of others as we interact with them. If we're with someone who thinks that eating, you know, say, bacon is morally wrong, even though we have every right under the law to eat bacon, we should abstain when we're around them. Now, this instruction seems to be a bit dated. I mean, it has been well established in the Christian church for centuries that Christians can indeed eat bacon and not feel guilty about it, unless it breaks their diet or something. Um, 
uh, our decisions these days concerning whether to eat bacon or not have much more to do with whether you know it's a healthy thing to do and, and not at all about whether eating bacon is against God's law. So it's been well settled for us as Christians that we can't eat bacon. So it's hard to put ourselves in the footsteps of those living at that time because they actually had this you know, uh, pang in their conscience if they did so. So you might ask, well, why don't we just skip this section of Romans, you know, because it's talking about these kind of dated dietary laws that we have been well established that don't apply to the Christian church. And I would say that we can, in fact, find application of Paul's teaching that does apply to the Christian church here and now. For instance, there are some for whom drinking any amount of alcohol always leads to self-destruction. And I think there is an obvious application of this principle that Paul's teaching uh, to that situation. If you're with someone prone to alcoholism or even just prone to getting into trouble if they drink, then don't drink alcohol around them. It's absolutely wrong to do so, even though in general, it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol. So that's an obvious case, I hope, to most of us. I think we can all agree that to drink alcohol around, you know, say, an alcoholic is not an act of love as Paul says in verse 15. In in addition to this obvious case, there are more subtle applications of this passage maybe to the Christian life here and now. For instance, I've known Christians who think it's wrong uh, for Christians to watch R-rated movies. And if that's the case, if you know someone who has that belief or uh, that conviction, rather than, say, mocking them and saying to them, hey, where'd you get that idea? What a dummy. Instead of mocking them, if they're at your house, well, you should turn off the slasher movie or whatever and turn on the Hallmark Channel or whatever. Turn on the football game. I don't know. Turn on something else. Respect their weakness in these things. And then there are those who think that Christians shouldn't gamble on any scales. So, you know, if you know someone who has that belief and you're watching a football game, don't offer a friendly wager on it. Well, you get the idea. Um... Even in today's world, there are those who have convictions that maybe aren't strictly against, you know, the law for Christians to do, yet they have this conviction, so you should should respect those convictions. Uh, So I think we can agree that there are applications of this teaching here and now, even though we don't have the specific situation of eating bacon that comes up very often. And as I said, we do have this situation where some Christians have beliefs that Christians shouldn't do certain things, so we should respect that, even if we consider such things to be okay in the freedom that we have in Christ. We're not to do anything that we know would possibly cause a brother or sister to stumble or do anything that maybe would offend other Christians in any way. Don't flaunt any freedom in Christ that you may have if such freedom would harm or offend others in any way. Many times, Christians have come up with these extra, shall we say, rules and regulations because they've seen these things harm other Christians or even they themselves are susceptible to be tempted into sin if they practice behaviors that for others would would not cause any harm. And Paul addresses this Uh, in some, I think, very interesting verses, actually. Let's look at level B of our structure, which is comprised of verse 14 and the verse uh, 22 and 23. Let's read verse 14 first. 
Quote, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Unquote. Then verses 22 and 23, which are par- parallel to that. Quote, So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin." These verses are interesting to me because what the verses are saying is that there are things which in general are permitted for Christians to do, things for which there are no pro- prohibitions in general for Christians, but for specific people, these things are not permitted because their conscience tells them that they shouldn't do them. Or, or let me be so bold as to put it another way, and, and this is something that I'm inferring from what Paul is saying here. Um, The Holy Spirit, as part of the process of sanctification, may lay down a law on my conscience and make it clear to me that it is wrong for me to do this or that thing, but yet that same behavior may be permitted for others. In other words, I think an implication of what Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit deals with people in different ways and takes into account our specific weaknesses and will give us the strong impression that certain behavior is forbidden to us specifically, even though for others this behavior may be okay. And Paul here tells us that. In fact, he tells us that to go against one's conscience about something is wrong, even if the same behavior is okay for others. Again, Paul says in verse 14, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. And then down in verse 23, he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. As I said, I think these verses are fascinating because these verses are pointing out, at least how I interpret them here, They're pointing out that the Holy Spirit, in bringing us through this process of sanctification and taking us on this journey to live a more Christ-like life, the Holy Spirit is dealing with different people in different ways. Now, I know that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned by name in this passage, but for me, a, a reference to the conscience, really, for me, that's a reference, really, to the Holy Spirit. It's my belief that the conscience is one of the primary tools that the Holy Spirit uses both in Christians and non-Christians. And when Paul says things like, well, that a person regards something as unclean, or or someone has doubts about doing this or that behavior, to me, he's speaking of the conscience. And and again, the way I see the conscience is really equivalent to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who created and controls our conscience. So that's why I say that even though the Holy Spirit is not mentioned by name in these specific verses, though, though, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in verse 17, come to think of it. Anyway, I think we, we can infer from this passage uh, things about how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of individuals, giving some certain convictions that others don't have. And as I said, what, what Paul is saying here is that there are certain things due to our individual weaknesses which are wrong for us individually but would be okay for our neighbor. And what Paul is commanding here is that we need to obey what our conscience is telling us about these things. Because to disobey it is, believe it or not, sin. He says it directly. Even though if your neighbor did exactly the same thing, it wouldn't be sin for him or her. 
So then, you know, let's take an obvious case that we've spoken about before. For a Christian who is a recovering alcoholic, the Holy Spirit is going to lay on that person's conscience that it's not okay to take a drink. The Holy Spirit is going to deal with each of us according to our weaknesses, and, and that makes sense. I mean, um, to us, that that case, I think. And, or there are some people who, if they watch an R-rated movie, that may lead them into stumbling in sin. And so the Holy Spirit may lay on their conscience a prohibition against watching R-rated movies. Or for others, for whom gambling might be an addiction, the Holy Spirit would lay on them prohibition to place any wager, even a friendly wager for small stakes. Even that could tempt them into greater and destructive sins. So the Holy Spirit lays on them, their conscience, a strong prohibition against gambling on any scale. And there are other areas where the Holy Spirit may be working specifically on you about a weakness that you may have, and uh, he may lay it out strongly in your conscience to abstain from that behavior. And if so, what Paul says here, specifically in verse 14, quote, if you regard something as unclean, in other words, if your conscience tells you that it's wrong to do this or that thing, if you regard something as unclean, then for you, it is unclean. And to do something that does not come from faith, as Paul says, is sin, as he lays out in verse 23. Anyway, I think this passage is just so interesting and so wise in how the Holy Spirit deals with each and every one of us individually according to our needs. Because the fact is, that we have different moral weaknesses and strengths. Some, some can drink and it's no problem, but for others it would destroy their lives. The same about watching R-rated movies or making a friendly wager. For some, these things can spiral into destructive behavior. And that's why Paul's language is so strong in level D of our structure. Uh, level D is covers the last part of verse 15 and the first part of verse 20 in um, kind of clearly parallel uh, phrases here. Verse 15, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Then verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Um, it's a rather strong statement, uh, kind of dramatic actually. And, and some of the scholars were puzzled by Paul's use of, use of the word destroy in these verses. They couldn't see how say, my eating bacon would destroy someone else. And for this reason, I think Paul is talking about more here than just eating bacon, than just the dietary laws. I think there's an application, a wider application. Um, uh, that's why I think it's right and proper for us to extrapolate Paul's teaching to cover the various weaknesses that people have and how the Holy Spirit deals with these uh, as we are um, tackling these things in the study. We can understand how, literally, we could destroy a recovering alcoholic if we drank alcohol around them. You know, someone comes to my house for dinner, he or she's a, a recovering alcoholic. I bring out a bottle of wine or something, a special bottle of cognac, I don't know. And he or she tells me, you know, I really shouldn't have a drink, but I press them. Just a small drink for the special occasion, come on. And my friends, is sin on my behalf. It would be a serious sin for me to do that. Why? Well, just as Paul says, do not by your eating or, or drinking, in this case, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of drink. What Paul's saying here is serious stuff. And we need to be aware of these things. We need to be sensitive to the weaknesses of others. Because if we're not, 
it could literally lead to destruction in some way in their lives. And we don't want to be the cause of that. Yes, we are free in Christ, but we can't let the exercise of our freedom harm others. We need to be aware of how our actions may stumble others. No man is an island, as John Donne famously said. Our actions do affect others, and we need to be aware of that and act in ways that don't stumble others. Or again, as Paul says in verses 20 and 21, all food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So having said all this, I think we've covered the main points of this passage. Uh, Let's now go back to the emphasis of this passage and reflect on it again. The emphasis, as I said, is found in the center of the structure, which is verse 17 in our case. Let's read it again. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So that is interesting. The Holy Spirit is mentioned here in the center of the structure. Um, And so uh, I really take that as a bit of a confirmation for me, at least, uh, to read into what Paul's saying, that uh, the Holy Spirit is at work in these things. Because Paul is telling us right here that the Holy Spirit is central to everything that goes on with respect to the kingdom of God and uh, preparing people for entering the kingdom of God. Whereas Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In this new covenant, God has chosen to do away with the minutiae of rules and regulations, and instead, he has given us the great gift of the Holy Spirit to work within us and to specifically address the moral needs of each and every one of us individually. Because the thing is, as we've been talking about, we we each have different moral weaknesses. And given this, it really becomes impossible to construct rules and regulations that would lead to our sanctification because each of us has, has different strengths and weaknesses. Because we have different weaknesses, a set of regulations that would address all of my issues, say, would necessarily be too nitpicky and restrictive for others. So, you know, if there were a set of regulations that covered everyone's uh, weaknesses, you know, they would have to say, don't drink, because for some drinking leads to destruction. And it would also have to say, well, don't watch R-rated movies and don't make a friendly wager, don't dance, don't don't go out after dark, don't do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And we would rebel against such a law. It would be far too restrictive. But God, in his great wisdom for the new covenant, has given us this great gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about, can deal with each of us on an individual basis. The Holy Spirit can say, hey, you, you can't drink. But for you, it's okay. But you, no, don't make any friendly wager. Don't gamble at all. And you over there, don't watch R-rated movies. No, no, not even those great shows on HBO. Sorry, you can't watch those things. In other words, for each of us, through the Holy Spirit, God puts a law on our minds and writes it on our hearts. In fact, God told us that he would do this long ago uh, uh, when he brought about the new covenant. Let's look at Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. This is a passage that we go to a lot because it's so significant. It lets us know that the new covenant and the workings of the new covenant, well, they're something that God planned long ago. 
and he laid it all out for Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote about it in a prophecy. Let's read part of it. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 33, quote, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people, unquote. Now, God in his grace extended this new covenant also to the Gentiles. He speaks of just the Jews here um, in, that, in Jeremiah, but he extended it to us Gentiles um, by his grace. We're also the beneficiaries of it. And this is just what we've been talking about. The times of the nitpicky rules and regulations are over. God's saying, I'm going to deal with you individually through the Holy Spirit. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is how the process of sanctification works. The Holy Spirit deals with each of us individually. So so truly, as Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of general rules and regulations. Rather, it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The righteousness we get from the guidance and promptings of the Holy Spirit as he deals with the weaknesses that each of us has individually. Um, It's also about peace, the peace that we get as we follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in doing so have peace with God that our actions are pleasing to him. And also joy, the joy of the salvation that we all have, the joy of living lives pleasing to God, the joy of the freedom that we have in Christ as we live our lives in accordance with the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling. All rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.